Russia's role in Armageddon, or as we've got on the screen there, the coming contest between man and Almighty God, which is really probably more to the point. Where, ladies and gentlemen, the events of this chapter, where will they take place? It's quite simple. We are told within the chapter, in verse 8 and verse 16, the events of this chapter will be in the land of Israel. When will the events of this chapter take place? Again, the same verses tell us the answer. They will be in the latter days. The latter days is a Bible term that speaks of the last times when man has the authority to rule himself. And we'll show you this evening what that really means. <clears throat> so let's begin our chapter at verses 1 and 2. Because what we're going to need to find is we're going to find some answers to some strange looking words and place names. And all we're going to do is just give you evidence to show what they mean in today's society. Because this prophecy was written by Ezekiel from God to Ezekiel, his prophet, 2,600 years ago about events that are shortly to happen upon this earth. So, verse 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog. He's of the land of Magog, and he's the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So God has a controversy with this man, Gog. But let's take things as they come. Who's son of man? Well, son of man is simply the writer of the book that God calls son of man, which is Ezekiel. But Ezekiel, as we just said, 2,600 years ago, this prophecy speaks of a time far distance, in our time. It's the latter days, as we've already talked about. So Ezekiel's title is simply pointing to somebody else, and there's only one other man in the Bible that has that title, and he is always called the Son of Man. Not Son of Man, but the Son of Man. So this prophecy is about the Son of Man or Jesus Christ. He is the one that will set his face against this Gog. So then, who is Gog? Gog simply means, it's a Hebrew word, and we should explain that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And we use dictionaries to give us the correct understanding of what those words mean in the English. So in the Hebrew, it means a covering roof. It means a man at the top, someone that is preeminent. He is the only one at the top, and that's probably more important. So he's a, this Gog is a person in total and absolute charge, all on his own. Therefore, he is an autocrat or a dictator. We know what they are. There's still some in the world today. By the end of two verses, we're going to know who Gog is. You see, God is not an author of confusion. He wants to tell us because he wants to warn us what is coming. So Jesus Christ is to come against Gog. Simple as that. So he's of the land of Mago. So where would the land of Mago be? Well, the Greeks called its people Scythians. So the historian Josephus says that they were known, the people of Magog were originally known as Scythians. So they went or they lived above the Black Sea and they moved between the rivers Danube and the Rhine into what historians called Central Europe. And that you'll find the answer, the proofs of that in the Penguin Atlas of World History, a reputable book. Also, Herodotus, Don Cassius, Diodorus Siculus, all historians of the ilk of Ezekiel's time all say that the same kind of thing. They moved right through those areas, right up to the Baltic and also within the River Don. We're going to see why in a minute, why these rivers are important. So Herodotus says Central Europe. That's where these, this um, Magog actually is. So Magog simply from what we're told, is Central Europe. These are not Christadelphian sources, ladies and gentlemen, none of them are. These are from reputable scientists and, and historians 
that have written about these things. So therefore, Gog will become a dictator over Central Europe. Okay, so let's have a look and see where this Central Europe is. There's the Scythians, just above the Black Sea. You can see that on the map quite clearly. So, we were told about these rivers, the River Don, then the River Danube, the River Rhine and the Baltic Sea at the top. So all the Scythians did, they migrated west and north and they were simply hemmed in by those rivers. So they literally stayed within those rivers and they came to those places. They filled that whole area and that's what was known as Central Europe or as the Bible calls it in those days, Magog. So let's just have a look. Where's the land of Magog? There it is, simply. Simply where they migrated to. Okay, so we go on, come back to the verse. The next thing we need to work out is what is who or what is the chief prince? Okay, firstly, prince is quite simple. It simply means to be a leader, a ruler or a king. Chief is an interesting word because in the Hebrew, it was um, translated into our Bible as a common noun. So they, they chose the word chief to translate it when in fact it was discovered quite simply that it was a proper noun and it was the Hebrew word Rosh and that's a name of a place. The revised version of the Bible that we're using tonight, we're using the authorised version, the next version that came out was the revised version and that picked this error up. So we read it like this, Son of man, set thy face toward Gog of the land of Magog and he's the prince of Rosh. Meshach and Tubal, so forth. Now again, Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, notable historian, he simply says that the Russians were first um, known as Ross. Very simple, straightforward. Again, Jacinius, and he is the greatest of the Hebrew scholars, he said undoubtedly Rosh is the Russians. Okay, we continue on a bit further. An author by the name of George Fernansky, a scholar, he says the first time that you ever see Russia appear in any writings is in the Bible, Ezekiel 38, under the title Rosh. And the book that he wrote was called The Origins of the Russians. Interestingly, he wrote this historical textbook in 1953. It was published by Oxford University Press and supervised by Yale University and supported by 20 Russian historians. Emphatic. It's very obvious who Rosh is. So Chief or Rosh is the ancient name for Russia that we know today. Therefore, Gog is to be the prince or king of Russia. That makes him in Russian terms simply a czar. And that, by definition, if you know anything about Russian history, makes him a dictator. Okay, so Gog is going to be Russian royalty. You can see how in two verses we've gone from 2,600 years ago to today. It's not hard to work out, is it? It's very simple. All we've got to do is just look at the history books and find out. Could this man be Gog? Again, not difficult, is it? I want you to look at this. I want you to look at the date. This is back in 2012 when Mr. Putin was inaugurated for the second time. But I want you to notice where he was inaugurated. He chose a room where the czars used to be um, enthroned. Interesting. Because simply right back then, Mr. Putin was showing us his personal ambitions within Russia. I want to be the Tsar. And you know what? The newspaper people of the world knew exactly that was true. So, so we now we look at we've got Prince of Rosh, a possible identification of who Gog might be. If it's not Mr. Putin, it has to be the ruler of Russia. So, what about Meshach and Tubal? Where is Meshach? Well, Meshach is the area of Moscow. 
where uh, Bocart in his Sacred Geography tells us that. Also, Gesenius again, he says the areas west of the Ural Mountains. If you know anything about Russian geography, the Ural Mountains are a vertical range that split Russia in two. And what is being identified here is both sides of the river uh, of, uh, of the Ural Mountains are mentioned here. So Tubal, we find, is the area east of those Ural Mountains. So simply, Ezekiel is trying to tell us that Rosh is made up of Meshek and Tubal. Comprehends all of Russia. It's such a vast territory. Okay, so let's summarise what we've learned so far. These two verses obviously very important. So, using the revised version, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. That's our verses. So, but from what we've learned, we could read Ezekiel 38 like this. Jesus Christ, he's the son of man, remember? Set your face against Gog, the dictator of central Europe, who is also the czar of the whole of the Russias, and prophesy against him. God has a controversy with this man because he knows what's going to happen because God knows the future and he knows and is controlling all the things that this chapter is going to tell us about. Okay, now note in verse 15, thou shalt come from thy place, Gog, out of the uttermost parts of the north. The only thing that is to the uttermost north of, of Israel, which is the subject of this chapter, is Russia. Another identification. Okay, and again, this was written two and a half thousand years ago about our days. Okay, so let's put it all together. Here we go. So now we have Rosh, Meshach and Tubal and Gog is going to be the Tsar of Russia. On the other hand, he is going to be an autocratic ruler of Central Europe. Do you see what we're being told so far? That this Gog is going to gather himself, his armies and others with him. But there's far more to come. Let's have a look a bit further. Will Mr Putin again become go? Have a look at this. Again, look at the time. Back in 2014, Time magazine, the very front cover, they knew exactly what he was about. He wants to be the Tsar of Russia. Premier ruled out. President ruled out, of which he still is, of course. But they know, because they watch this man, what his aims really are. And they fit exactly with what the Bible told us but it was 2,600 years ago when God recorded this prophecy. Okay. That's an interesting thing. It's only just happened, hasn't it? Because the Russians have just had so-called election. He not only has the power and the ambition to be the Tsar, but now he's got plenty of time. He's in power to 2,036, if he lasts that long. Another thing about Mr Putin, he's not only interested in about ruling uh, Russia, but he wants, as we're going to see, to rule the world. So he is, notice again the age of this uh, snippet that we, uh, we've blown up, 2014, he wanted to revamp his entire military service. It's now 2020, it's a fact, he's already done it because he knows what he's doing. He has a plan. Okay, so let's come back to Ezekiel 38, and this time, verse 3 and 4. He says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee. God is against this go, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now notice what's said here. God says, I'm going to turn you back, and I will bring you forth. So whatever Gog is going to do, he doesn't really want to do it. God is going to do it because Almighty God is actually in control of Gog and the army that he's going to present with. But there are other nations. Gog is not content to have just himself and Central Europe, which has the powerhouse of Germany involved, but he wants more. He says there are the other nations, or some of them are Persia, Ethiopia and Libya. 
are going to come as well. So where's Persia? This one's pretty easy to, to identify. In 1959, the Shah of Persia was deposed and the name was changed to Iran. Very simple. Ethiopia, well, that's very similar to what it is today. It just was a little bit larger in those days. It included Sudan as well. And Libya, well, it's the same nation. Hasn't changed at all. All these nations are going to be with Gog. <clears throat> There's a couple more. Goma and all his bands. So where is Goma? Well, another historian called Strabo, he said those cities, remember, that migrated from above the Black Sea, some of them actually moved past those rivers and they went into the area of Gaul. Now, if you read Asterix, you know exactly where that is. <laughs> Isidore, AD 600, he says Goma was basically the area of France, Belgium and Switzerland. So actually a bit bigger than France. And interestingly enough, King Louis Philip of France sailed to England during his reign on a ship called Goma. How convenient. So Goma is obviously identified with the area of France. None of this is very difficult, is it? But we are being, we are updating history to our age, which is exactly what God said. This is about what's going to happen in Israel and it's going to happen in our days, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Two more, no, one more. Togemar of the North Quarters is also involved with Gog. So where's Togemar? Well, Jewish historian this time, he said they were called Phrygians and that was, they lived in the area of central Turkey. Of the North Quarters, north of Israel, so probably also encompassing Armenia and Georgia, says another Bible atlas. So Togemar, roughly the area of Turkey and Georgia. You can't actually put exactly the, the uh, areas to them because things change over time, but we know roughly that area. So let's try and put this on the map. There's Persia and Iran. Remember, this, these nations are with Gog. We'll find out why shortly. Here's Ethiopia and Sudan. There's Libya. Then we have Goma. France and perhaps a bit more. And we also have Togoma. Look at this, ladies and gentlemen. This is massive. You imagine just for a minute that if all those people put their armies together, what would you have in the world? You would have terrifying headlines on the news. In fact, we are told in another place in Daniel 2 that it's actually going to be all of Europe that's going to be with Gog. Okay. So what does the Bible say is the purpose of Gog and the nations with him? They're not doing this for trade. This is far more sinister than that. Okay, so let's have a look at God's in, uh, Gog's intentions, which are told us in the next verses. After many days, God is talking to Gog here. He said, You're, excuse me, you will be visited <clears throat> in the latter years. So Gog's going to be summoned by God, not that he knows that, in our days. And what's he going to do? He's going to come against the mountains of Israel, home of the Jews, which have always been laid waste, but is brought forth out of the nations. Now, interestingly, when Ezekiel wrote this, the Jews weren't even in the land of Israel. They were actually being cast out twice because of unbelief of God. And they are God's chosen people. And he expects from them their loyalty, which often, sadly, he never got. But in 1948, the second time, the Jews began to come back to the land of Israel and the United Nations voted them as a nation once again in that same year. Ezekiel was writing about it before it happened. And it has happened. Okay, he says, Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. So Gog, with all these nations and their armies, are coming, not in a friendly manner, but they're coming like a storm. A massive invasion. You might be forgiven if you think this looks like World War III. 
Because if it wasn't for God, that's exactly what it would be. Okay, we need to add, just go to another prophecy of Daniel, who was a prophet at the same time as Ezekiel, to just find out a little bit of detail that Ezekiel omits. In Daniel chapter 11 and verse 41, he says, when Gog comes down, he says, some nations are going to escape. Gog is going to charge through Israel, but at places called Edom and Moab and Ammon are going to escape. In other words, Gog's army is not going to go to those places. In verse 42, it says where he is going, he's charging through the land of Israel straight down into Egypt. Verse 43, and again, identifying the two prophecies, Ezekiel and Daniel, he mentions the Libyans and the Ethiopians will be at Gog's step, just as Ezekiel had. So Gog's armies pass through Israel, firstly, on their way to take Egypt, but some nations we've just found out are going to escape. All right, let's put that on the map and see what happens. <clears throat> so here comes a massive invasion into the Middle East, through Israel, the area of Jordan. That's Edom and Moab and Ammon of old times. They will escape, but Egypt will not, and it will be taken. This is going to be terrifying news, ladies and gentlemen. And that's why it's in the Bible, because God wants you to know about it now, before it happens, so that you can do something with your life to bring it into order with God, who wants to save everybody that he can, because he knows what man is going to do. Alrighty, so, after Egypt falls, we go back to Ezekiel and we carry on. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall come also come to pass that in the same time shall things come into thy mind, Gog. Gog's going to have an evil thought. He's gone, into, he's gone through Israel, down into Egypt, and when he's there, he has an evil thought, like so many before him. The Babylonians, the Roman Empire, Hitler's Empire, have one thing in common. They all try to get rid of the Jews, and you can't do it because if you read your Bible you would know that the Israel is God's chosen people and he promised the first Jew that he would always look after him and his nation. You cannot get rid of the Jews. Anyway, let's move on. Thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, those that are at rest, that dwell safely, without walls, bars nor gates. Now there is a wall right in the middle of Israel. So something will have to change. That will have to go. Because that describes Israel as a land dwelling, perhaps carelessly, but seemingly peacefully. And they're going to come to take a spoil, a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, upon the people that are gathered out of all nations that dwell in the midst of the land. He's going to come back to get rid of the Jews. That's what he's going to do, that dwell in the land. So go comes back from Egypt into Israel to begin to destroy the Jews. But as I said, they are God's people. That cannot be done. And we'll show you what happens. So you would think if you woke up and saw those kinds of headlines on your paper or in the, in the uh, technology somehow, you would imagine that there would be nations in the world who would say, whoa, stop that would come against Gog and try and make a defence. And that's exactly what happens. And here they are in the next verse, in verse 13. There's a place called Sheba, a country called Dedan, and also these merchants of Tarshish with, that are connected with these young lions. And they will make a weak cry because of the magnitude of this. There's never been an army assembled like this one's going to be. And they make a weak cry to stop the Russian-European armies. So we need to find out who they are, don't we? Again, just like we did before. Sheba and Dedan, let's take those two first. So where is Sheba? Well, the Queen of Sheba came from that area we know today as Yemen. She came with spices and gifts to King Solomon. It's actually recorded in the Bible. There are still ruins there of that ancient civilization built around the spice trade. 
I actually had an article written by the National Geographic which showed some of the ruins. Unfortunately, I wasn't in the truth then. And guess what? I threw it away. <laughs> Wished I had it, but I don't. <laughs> but I've seen it. <laughs> so, Sheba is the region of Yemen in Saudi Arabia. But where's Dedan? Well, it's on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula, today known as Oman or the Gulf States, again in Saudi Arabia. So let's put all that on there. So now we're looking at the nations that will oppose this mighty army of Gogs. So Egypt's gone at this stage. Sheba, and there's Dedan. In fact, it could be the whole of the Saudi Peninsula. It, I, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Okay, so back we go. Now we need to find out who the merchants of Tarshish are. You might be a little bit sceptical about this, so I've got quite a bit of proof to show who they are. Who are the merchants of Tarshish? Well, if we go back a few chapters in Ezekiel, Ezekiel actually describes these people. He says that the Phoenician capital city of Tyre, I'll show you where that is in a bit, was situated on the coast of Lebanon at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. So it's just above Israel. They were merchants in their day. Remember, we're talking 2,500 years ago. And they traded with many nations, buying all kinds of merchandise for their markets. They had a huge navy that went right throughout the Mediterranean and up into the Black Sea. So they were merchants. They were the Kmart, if you like, of the Middle East back in those days. He goes on, Ezekiel that is, and he says Tyre traded with Tarshish for silver, iron and principally tin and lead. And tin was a very rare and highly prized commodity in those days. Sounds a bit <laughs> a nothing today, but in those days it was very highly prized and difficult to find. So let's have a bit more on Tarshish. Now, Richard's topical encyclopedia says that the Phoenician traders sailed out through the Straits of Gibraltar and discovered the English tin mines. A bit further on in the green there, Britain had valuable tin mines. The Phoenician traders used to visit England to get tin many centuries before the Lord Jesus Christ. This was written around 350 BC. So they were quite well known who they were and where they went and what they found. Okay, Bocart, an ancient historian, he says that the Phoenicians traded frequently here for tin and called the place Baratanic originally, meaning the land of tin. Later the Greeks shortened that name to Britannia, which you might be um, familiar with, and eventually that was softened to Britain. Today, you can even go to Cornwall, if you're a tourist, you can go to the south of Britain to a place called St Michael's Mount and you can pick up a travel brochure that states, in ancient times, the Phoenicians traded here for tin and copper. So I think we're building quite a case for who Tarshish is. <clears throat> a little more. Okay, so tin was found in the British Isles, this um, website says in the Cornish tin mines. I thought you might like this, because look at why they, they kept Britain a very closely guarded secret, because they were traders, merchants, and they wanted to control the price of tin, so they told nobody. That way they inflated, kept the price of tin very high. Typical traders, no different today. Now, Her Majesty's stationary office in, in England has a publication on mining that says in the southwest of England are tin mines, silver, and, and others as well. He continues on and says the date of discovery of tin in the west of England is not known, but they do know that it was being produced about 2,500 years ago, exactly the time when Ezekiel was writing. So history checks out. And Britain are the masters of keeping records. Everything, they, everything they've ever done seems to be on parchment somewhere in England. Okay, there is one other place in the Bible known as Tarshish, and that's identified with the nation of India. Principally Britain, but India is there in the Bible as well. 
All right, so let's put all this and just show you what these Phoenicians did. Remember, we started with the Phoenicians, so that's roughly where they lived, just above Lebanon, and they traded right up through the Black Sea via their ships. And they also went out through the Mediterranean up to England. Now, if you look at that map, you can see that while it's 2,500 years ago, that would not have been difficult to do for sailboats. Large sailboats could easily navigate through the Mediterranean, no doubt calling on all sorts of ports along the way. Not hard to imagine that actually happening at all. All right. Okay, so we've got Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish we've looked at as Britain, but they are connected with this group called the Young Lions. So let's find out who are they. Okay, firstly, what we put up there are two World War I posters put out by the British government calling to, for help from other nations. Now, notice you'll see that Britain here is, is cast as the old lion. But have a look at the pictures carefully. Just have a look at what you see there. Down there, there's an old lion, but there's a whole stack of young lions under there. And notice the wording. They're calling out to the young lions. Now, these are British posters. Okay? Again, here at 10 Downing Street. The call has gone out and the young lions come to answer. That's what these are all about. Again, the young lions with the old lion on, uh, up the top calling the young lions to help to defeat the Germans in the First World War. So quite simply, Britain's Commonwealth of Nations, which include Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South, South Africa, are the young lions. Okay, so now let's put all that up together. Tarshish is Britain, but it's also India. And we have the young lions. We can't show them on the map because they're outside that map area. But I want you to notice one thing. And our Bible students have known this for years. Notice Britain is not part of Europe. Now we know that Britain's been in Europe for 20 odd years, maybe longer. But we've known because of this verse that Britain is going to oppose Europe and Gog's army. So we knew that Britain would come out of the EU. And it's now finally an accomplished fact. The Bible is super accurate because God actually knows the future and he not only tells us about it, but he makes it happen. Why? We're going to find out in a minute because at this juncture, the world is finally going to find out that there is a God. Okay, so what's going to happen? These are the countries that are going to come against um, Gog and all his armies. In fact, they're already in this area up here in Jordan. They're going to come up there and Gog, remember, thinks an evil thought. He will come up out of Egypt and he will, there will be a massive conflict. And World War III will have begun. But what's the outcome of all this? Back to Daniel again, a few verses further on than we looked before. It says, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy. As he comes out of Egypt, he is hell-bent on destroying utterly the Jewish nation. Verse 44, 45 says, and he shall plant his tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. He's going to plant his tabernacles. He is going to win this battle against the allied forces. And he's going he's to set himself up between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. That's all that's saying. Right in the city of Jerusalem. So Gog will be victorious over the allies. And the entire world will therefore be at Gog's mercy. And surely that will mean World War III. Okay, so Gog's army is victorious. Have a look at it. It's just frightening to look at all that red and realise that those armies now control the centre of the world. In the Second World War, they knew, the Allied leaders knew if you took the Middle East, you would rule the world. And that's exactly what Gog's thinking he's going to do. So, but 
We've left off the last phrase in verse 45 of uh, Daniel 11. Here it says, yet when it seems that Gog is victorious, it says, yet he shall come to his end. And there'll be no one there to help him. How could that possibly be? How could you defeat such an army? As Gog and his armies are destroying the allies and the Jews, God's chosen people, he and his armies will themselves be overwhelmed in an instant because God's going to become involved. Okay, so what does it mean? What really happens next? The Bible's going to tell us. God will meet Gog in Israel. In verse 14 to 17, we'll just pick up those coloured bits. Again, he reiterates that Gog will come against the people of Israel in the latter days. And then he, God says, I will bring you against my land. God's in control. That the heathen, that is all the world, will know me. God, who is completely discounted today. And he says, I will be sanctified in you, Gog before the world's eyes. On a world stage, God is finally going to reveal himself. The next verses simply describe what everybody understands as Armageddon. It's a battle. It's a single battle. Verse 18 to 20 says that when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, God's fury will come up in his face. I would not want to be anywhere near anywhere where God becomes angry. God rarely ever becomes angry because he's portrayed in the Bible as a very long-suffering father in heaven to those that love him. But to those that hate him, there is going to come time when his fury shall come up in his face. What will happen then? Surely in that day there will be a great shaking in the land of Israel. There is going to be a massive earthquake, ladies and gentlemen, and that is what's going to destroy Gog's armies in an instant. Every mountain will be thrown down. Every wall shall fall. This is not an ordinary metre-wide shake-up of a bit of the earth's crust. No, we'll describe it for you in a second. Well, the Bible will. So, moving on to what, these are the last verses of Ezekiel 38. It says, every man's sword will be against his brother. There's going to be such terror their own army will kill each other to get out of the way of what's going on. There will be pestilence, a destroying plague. We know what that is. We've got one with us now. And with blood, overflowing rain, hail, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Then God says, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Finally, Almighty God is simply going to unleash the forces of nature that we so glibly use in this world so we don't have to say God, to humble Gog and his mighty armies. So, does that mean that God himself will come to the earth? Let, I want you to turn up your Bibles now. I want you to come to Zechariah 14. Because we need to have a little look at what's really going to happen. It's not God himself that's going to come. It's his representative. But let's have a look at Zechariah 14. Because this subject is in a considerable number of places in the Bible. Because God wants us to know and therefore to be able to do something about it. In Zechariah chapter 14, we're just going to read a few verses. It says in verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. Here we are in Israel, right in the capital city. What for? To battle. And the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The Jews here in Israel are under enormous siege. The final solution, this time by the Russians, is on its way. And that's when God will act because he will not let that nation be destroyed. And so we read in verse 4. This is an answer to what actually happens at this earthquake. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem. 
At the end of the verse, it says, a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half towards the south. It's describing this earthquake. But notice what it said at the beginning of the verse. It's not God that comes, it's his representative. You see, again, if you knew your Bible a little bit, you would know that Jesus Christ, when he left the earth, was standing on the Mount of Olives at a place called Bethany. And the disciples literally watched him ascend up into heaven and two angels standing there said, he's coming back. As you've seen him go, he's coming back to exactly the same spot. So this is the feet of Jesus Christ, God's representative, his son, now immortal, returned to the earth. At the end of verse 5, look at this. The Lord my God shall come, and he's not on his own, but he's coming with all the saints with him. There are going to be a massive army with Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the invitation to you. You could be part of this with Christ to stop the slaughter, to bring actual peace to the earth, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 9, the end result of this massive earthquake is the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Through Jesus Christ, his son, he will become king over the entire world. Now, I just want you to notice in verse 10, the earthquake, the size of this earthquake. Geba to Rimen, it says in verse 10. That is a space, a distance of 40 kilometres. When that earthquake strikes, when Christ's feet stand on the Mount of Olives, there will be an earthquake that's going to leave 40 kilometres either side of uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem pretty much in the centre of all this will be flattened. And that's a mountainous region at the moment. It'll be flattened. One mountain peak will be left there. So what's it look like? Here we go. Christ and the saints. That's what Zacharias described. Christ and the saints will come to save Israel and destroy Gog's forces with an earthquake that the earth has no clue of for its magnitude. We don't know how far that earthquake will resound around the earth, but the world will know that something drastic has happened. They will know Gog is there with all his forces, and then all of a sudden, it's going to go quiet. And they're going to wonder, they're going to scramble to know what's happening. Okay. So, this is what we really would like to talk to you about. That's what's going to happen. God is telling us there is going to be a terrible controversy in the world. And God is going to cause it because he has a plan. He has a plan with you. We've seen Gog's got a plan, but it's just like all the others that have gone before him. They want as much as they can possibly get, and they don't care who they kill or slaughter in the process. That's the way man works. And sadly, because of that, that's how God will have to treat man to get him to stop. But that's not God's ultimate intention. You see, God's ultimate intention is that Christ and his immortal followers, which you can be, you are invited to become part of, will make all nations submit to his rule as he sets up almighty God's worldwide kingdom. He will take over the world, and the Bible's full of description of it. We've just got a very few quotes there of many we could put up. He will then go about solving all of mankind's self-inflicted problems by his perfect wisdom. And his power. And if you've ever read anything about Christ, a stunning figure. He left people speechless by his wisdom. That wisdom and with God's power, unlimited power, which created the universe, he is going to even care for the poor and the needy. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to stop and think for a second. Have you ever, ever heard of one nation? One ruler that has ever solved the problem of the poor. You never have, because it's never happened. There's never been a nation in the history of man that has looked after its own people because of their poor. They talk about it, but it never happens. This man, with his power, 
and us with him ruling the world will bring that into actual fact. The mortal population will initially have to learn to worship God because they won't do it willingly. They won't do it now, they won't do it then either, but they will be led to it. And they will come to serve the Lord Jesus Christ as their king on earth. And finally, when the world starts to act like God, we will find the world will come to real peace. We've got a couple of minutes. I want to just show you some of the wonders that are coming. I want you to come back to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to look up two of those quotes, just to give you an inkling of the wonderful things that are coming. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. This is what Christ is coming to do. This has been in the Bible ever since this book was written. The Old Testament was written 200 years before Jesus Christ drew breath. The New Testament, a few hundred years later, it's been with us for nearly 2,000 years. Verse 44 says, in the days of these kings, in the days of the kings we've been looking at and in the red on those maps, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It's going to last forever, this kingdom. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. You have to be invited. You have to be included by God in, to get into this kingdom. You have to do something, ladies and gentlemen. And it shall break in pieces and consume all of the world's kingdoms. And God's kingdom will stand forever. There it is. And there are heaps of quotes like that. I want you to come back a little bit further to the middle of the Bible, to Isaiah 2. Let's have a little glimpse of what it'll be like in the world when really, truly, good times come upon this earth. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Here we are, back in the land of Israel. And here's another prophet of God being given a prophecy of what is to come. And he says, it shall come to pass in the last days, our days, that the mountain of the Lord's house, a temple, is going to be built. That's what it's describing. And shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. So God, Christ is going to build a temple to the worship of God, almighty God, in Jerusalem. And all nations, people from all nations, will come up willingly to worship God in those days. This is why, verse 3, many people shall go and say, hey, come, let's go together. Let's go up to the mountain of the house of God because he will teach us his ways and, he will, and we will walk in his path because God is only going to teach them to do wonderful things to actually look after your neighbour, to worship God, to do what God said is good. Verse 4, and he will judge among the nations. The people will understand this by this point in time. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, implements of war made into implements for agriculture. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. Now that's real peace, when there is no armies, when you don't even go and learn how to be a soldier. Gone, finished, because God's kingdom, that he's always said he is going to do, will actually be a reality in this day. Finally, I want to just have a little broader look of what this book, the Bible, is about, given what we've learned so far. You see, God created man with free will. He didn't evolve, God created him. So God could, a man was able to serve God or to serve himself. God let man choose because he doesn't want robots, he wants our hearts. So for 6,000 years, not for millions, for 6,000 years, men have gone about, as we all know, if we think about it seriously, grasping at all the money, of the power that they can get, and they're willing often to fight to the death to keep control of what they have. 
That's because man is basically evil while being capable of doing good. But today's society says, no, he's basically good, capable of evil. Completely the wrong way around. Proof? Just listen to this one statistic. 50% of the murders committed in Australia, and this is a recent statistic, are committed by family members, loved ones, who kill each other. Man is not basically good. Man is basically evil, able to do good, of course. Because man, God gave man free will. But man has sought out many inventions to do what he wants to do. Just forget God, put him to one side. But during that same 6,000 year period, since Adam and Eve were created, a wonderful and merciful God has been quietly calling people out of all the nations for his coming kingdom, which we have a, had a glimpse of tonight, that his son, Jesus Christ, will set up on this earth forever. That means the implications of that everlasting kingdom are that <clears throat> there are faithful people from throughout history who will one day live forever. It doesn't matter whether they've previously died or are alive at Christ's return, because Almighty God can raise the dead. And Jesus Christ is proof. And you cannot get rid of Jesus Christ out of your history books, because he's in there. He's in the Bible, but he's in man's history books. He lived and they know he was crucified, but he has been raised the first from the dead. God's plan for the people of this earth is fully recorded in the pages of the Bible. It gives the reader all the information required to be able to build a strong faith in God and his plan of peace forever so that you can be part of that wonderful world to come when there is no more war. The choice has always been and still is an individual one. But faith, the Bible says, in God only comes by reading and searching the pages of this book. But ladies and gentlemen, we appeal to you because we know more than what we've said tonight, that the last generation of men and women, this generation, the Bible says, will see Jesus Christ stand upon this earth to become king of the world. But when you see him in the world, it's too late. You have an opportunity now. You have the opportunity now to freely, of your own free will, seek out God's plan and to become part of that. And there's all the Christadelphians in this hall will be only too willing to help you to come to an understanding of that. Thank you.